Uh, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Um, we're in this series called Bold Exploration where we're examining the kind of the qualities of what is, it, what is God asking of us or how has he equipped us to boldly explore who he is, who we are, and who, what the world around us is really like. And um, today I'm, I'm really excited. This is something that's been on my heart for a long time uh, because it actually combines my disciplines. Um, I, I am not technically... Uh, do not technically have a degree to do what I'm doing right now. I have a degree in art education. And um, so I was an art teacher for a few years, and then the Lord called me into ministry. Um, and I wonder if more pastors and bishops had art degrees, how different the church might look in terms of our attitudes and values. But that's for another time altogether. But um, I'm really excited about today because I kind of get to marry these two passions, these two disciplines in my own life uh, and talk about something that I think is incredibly important for the church today to understand, especially in the way that it equips us for bold exploration. Um, every morning I have this prayer ritual and it begins with this line uh, from Psalm 27. It says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his holy temple. And it's an amazing way to start the day, this, this phrase, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Um, and and, and it, it, there's, there's something kind of mysterious and alluring about that when we begin to talk about beauty. And so that's really what, where I want us to focus tonight. So I'm gonna pray, I'll pray for you and you pray for me and we'll get right into this. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these sweet times of worship. We thank you for all of the, the, the activity in our community as people are choosing to say yes to you and however you're calling us uh, to be your people. Um, in worship, in word, in generosity, in missions, in being local, whatever it is, Lord, there's such a diversity of story uh, in this room tonight, Lord, and we just affirm all of them as examples of, of what happens when you call us into your family. Um, and tonight, Father, as we hone in on this idea of beauty, I pray that you would open up every part of us that needs to receive that kind of truth, uh, because it's something that, that engages us uh, in every part of who we are, our, in our mind, in our body, in our heart, and in our spirit. And so, Father, we, we open all to you. We give you permission to move in us and through us, to speak to each one of us, whatever we need to hear you say tonight, that we might leave here having an encounter with you that changes us, transforms us more into the likeness of Christ. And it's in his strong and beautiful and blessed name that we pray, amen. So this is kind of my, uh, my focal point for tonight. Bold exploration invites us to embrace beauty. Bold exploration invites us to embrace beauty. You know, 16% of the scripture is poetry. There's this really amazing moment where Moses has just led the Israelites through the Red Sea. The sea closes over the Egyptian armies and they're celebrating and then Moses leaps into this song. And we see this several times in all of the narrative bits of scripture that something happens that's so wonderful, so dramatic that it can't merely be described. It has to be expressed in some other form. And so there's some songs or poetry that are kind of highlighted in that. We have books upon books of scripture that are just written in an artistic form. We also see time and again that human beings feel this need to build monuments to remember what God has done. And they could have just told each other the stories. That would have been fine, but that wasn't enough. And you see in the very beginning, they just kind of take a rock and just lay it up and it's like, look. 
okay, there was a thing happened here. And then there was like, next in like Joshua, there's like, now there's a pile of rocks. And then eventually, you know, we start carving monuments and creating these gorgeous big buildings. And throughout scripture, we see time and again that the, the people that are encountering God, something moves within their hearts that they have to express the beauty of the reality of God. And it doesn't just stop within scripture. We see time and again throughout ch- church history and the history of the world that people feel compelled to create these moments, these experiences, these pieces of art that point us to the beauty of God. And why is that? Why, why did Beethoven feel the need to write Symphony Number no. 9? Why did Michelangelo feel the need to paint the Sistine Chapel? Why do we feel this need to express something a little bit be above and beyond merely being able to describe it, of relaying information to one another? And that's really what I want us to focus on tonight. What is the necessity of beauty when it comes to our exploration of faith? And so I want to begin by talking about what beauty is and what its value to us is. I want to talk about um, kind of the story of the church and how we've interacted with the concept of beauty. And then finally, I want us to talk about how do we reaffirm and reintegrate beauty as central to our faith journey. So let's begin with talking about what beauty is. Beauty, though hard to define, points us to truth. Beauty is one of these words like truth or like love that it's really hard for us to reduce it and boil it down into a phrase or a sentence that kind of sums it up. Uh, and maybe that's even part of the point. You know, I think love is a lot like this. We, we maybe all have a difficult time in describing love, but we know it when we see it. Or better yet, we know it when we experience it. One of my favorites, Cornel West, he says, love is the steadfast commitment to the well-being of other people. And I think that's a really good starting point. But in no way does it encapsulate what love is. He also goes on to say, justice is what love looks like in public and tenderness is what love feels like in private. And that is pretty awesome. But even that doesn't quite, it's, it's a signpost. It's a hint that just kind of impresses upon us a little something more, but it's something that invites us into experience. And I think that beauty is very much the same kind of word. Whenever we try to define beauty, in some way it feels reductive, but the definition feels small. And I think that's kind of the point, that beauty is something that goes a little bit beyond just a description, just something that we can write down on a piece of paper or share with one another in a moment. But I think that beauty, even though it's hard to define, it's something about pointing us to capital T, truth. And I think there's an amazing relationship between truth and beauty. I think truth, in order to actually be truth, must be beautiful. And, can, and because of that, true beauty must be honest. True beauty must be honest. And real truth must be beautiful. I think those things are mutually inclusive. And so one way that I like to talk about beauty is that true beauty has to be both honest and hopeful. And, and throughout the message tonight, I'm going to be using a lot of um, like art imagery, but don't even box beauty in just to being about the arts. It's not about just theater and painting and sculpture and so on, but it kind of portrays every part of life. But I think art is specifically the place where we have the conversations about what is beautiful. And so for me, beauty has to hold in a creative tension a sense of honesty and a sense of hope. Now we have some art in the world that's only the honesty of the way the world is. And anything that describes the way the world is as it is today, 
We consider that honest, we consider that good, we consider that a high calling of art. But sometimes we can get so obsessed with the way things are today that we create what's called brutalist art. That there's no real sense of hope in it, that, that the reality of life is just the nitty-gritty dirt under your fingernails and it's kind of the, the essential ugliness of the thing. And that's where we can get stuck sometimes with art. But there's this other side where we only portray the other picture. We only portray like the future image or whatever and, and our art becomes kind of saccharine and kitschy and it has no, no real landing place in the way the world actually is today. Consider those like little precious moments uh, you know, figurines that maybe your grandmother uh, had at her house. You know, some, sometimes we create this art that's so brutally honest uh, that there's an aversion to it, or we create art that's so far removed from reality that it has nothing real to speak to us. But true beauty, I think, lives in that creative tension between honesty and hope. I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is my favorite books in the, all of scripture. It's part of this larger wisdom tradition that we find in scripture. And the amazing thing about the wisdom tradition is so often what we're presented with on the surface is not actually the thing that we're looking at. And especially with Ecclesiastes, some of the things that Solomon writes at the end of his years uh, is so offensive to us that we have to do a little bit of work to dig beyond the thing to find out what he's really trying to say. And so this is a passage where he kind of speaks about the human uh, the, the place of beauty within the human spirit. And this is what he says. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. I think Solomon so beautifully articulates this idea that the pursuit of beauty is written into the DNA of what it means for you and I to be a human being. And so this first thing that he says, that God has laid this burden upon the human race. And what is that burden? It's the burden of beauty. You know, a lot of times burden has this negative connotation to it, but have you ever experienced the heaviness of a moment that kind of wakes you up to reality? And it's not a bad thing. Like you feel that things matter. Like there's the heaviness that, oh my goodness, this is real and it matters. This is the burden that God has laid upon us. And there's that burden for beauty that he's built into all of us. Even from a very small age, we're drawn in by beauty. There's something about beauty that awakens us and then draws us into a new place, even from a very early age. And so this burden that God has placed upon you and I as he is established within our spiritual DNA, this pursuit of beauty, is that we recognize the way the world is right now, but on some level we also recognize what it could be, what it should be, and perhaps even what it will be. And it's that pursuit of beauty that in some level we all know what beauty is and we know that it draws us forward in the story that speaks to how God has wired us. Now when we talk about aesthetics, it's kind of this subset, what do we find beautiful, that's where there's a little bit of diversity. I guess I've become somewhat notorious for how my musical tastes are a little bit different than other people in this room. Uh, just earlier today, we were listening to a new uh, death metal band called Flesh Killer that I found today, and I think they're pretty awesome, and if that's your bag, you should go check them out. 
But beauty is, is this thing that draws us in, that we know that there's something a little bit more just on the other side, just on the horizon. And then it, you know, Solomon goes on and he says that he set eternity in the human heart. God has set eternity. So he's given, he's given us this burden for beauty, but he's set eternity in our heart. And what he's saying there is that whatever it is that God has placed in your heart, your understanding and your experience cannot be limited or defined or quantified. That eternity lives in your heart right now. That there is so much space for you to explore who God is. There is so much space for you to explore the way the world is and how he's created it and what it is that he's doing in this place. And so the eternity that he's created in your heart gives you permission to experience beauty, to discover beauty that will take you the rest of your life. And he goes on to say, no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's so much out there for us to discover. And I think the big thing here is this, beauty draws us into truth by the allure of mystery, but propaganda coerces us by reducing and distorting truth for political gain. And when I use the word political here, I don't just mean like politics, like government. I mean that when you have a personal agenda to craft an organization of people that inherently benefits who you are, to get people on your team, to get it so that you're the one that comes out on the end. And this is essentially what propaganda is. Propaganda is concrete. It says, this is what's going on. This is how you're supposed to behave. Don't ask any questions. There's no ambiguity in propaganda. I want to show you a couple examples, these posters from World War II. This is number one. It says, when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. How many of you rode here alone tonight? You salty dogs. You are contributing to the Nazi cause. Look at that ghost Hitler sitting in that, that little car there. So this was, a, this was a poster that came out in World War II, and the idea, of course, is to be able to conserve resources in the United States as they're devoting everything to the war. And so they're telling you, like, no one's going to look at this poster and go, I wonder what the intention of the artist was. I wonder what he was trying to get at here. No, it's not ambiguous at all. This is very concrete. If you, if you drive a car by yourself, you're contributing to Nazism. Let's go to the next one. I love this one. Is he your child? then you don't want this. You don't want your kid becoming a Nazi. So what do you need to do? Because we're all freaked out. No, of course I don't want my child to become a Nazi. Well, you need to buy war bonds before it's too late. And little Timmy becomes little Hitler. There's no ambiguity in propaganda. It's concrete. It's selling you the party line. It's saying, this is what you're supposed to believe. This is how you're supposed to behave. There is no room for discussion. And oftentimes, propaganda uses fear in order to control the people that it's reaching out to. And I think, unfortunately, so much of what we consider Christian art falls into the zone of propaganda, that it's not been true art. And maybe that's in music, maybe that's been in painting, maybe that's been in theater, whatever the discipline might be, a lot of times we've reduced the possibility that art has for us to proclaim a, really, a very real gospel to the world into propaganda. That our songs are just about trying to get people onto our team. That our plays are just about trying to convince people that they need to agree with us so that we feel better about ourselves. I mean, is there any more vulgar propaganda than when we see the, the street preacher out there with a sign that says, repent or perish, you're going to burn in hell. 
There's no ambiguity. There's no conversation. There's no allure of the mystery of God. It has already been reduced for you and you're being told, this is what you're supposed to believe. This is how you're supposed to behave. I think this is why so many of us are resistant to the place of beauty within our faith. Because beauty, unlike propaganda, is uncontrollable. Beauty is untamable. Beauty is not something that we can easily grasp, even at a single encounter. Because we've been trained to to desire the convenient package that just tells us what to believe, that just tells us what to do. We've been consuming propaganda for so long, we've misnomered it as art. But to give ourselves over to the pursuit of beauty means that we prioritize experience over understanding. Because propaganda gives us everything in very simple terms. If you rode here alone, you may as well have rode here with Hitler. There is no other way of looking at it. And that's how propaganda functions. But if we give ourselves over to this pursuit of beauty, we're opening ourselves up to say, it's about the experience. It's about the transformative encounter. It's not about me understanding it. It's not about me being able to merely describe it or affirm it, but it's about me choosing to participate in it time and again. You know, throughout the years as I, you know, studied art and then taught art, I would take my students to museums, I'd go with my family, and one of the things that I would get time and again, one of my favorite types of art is that obnoxious color field painting that everybody seems to hate, and they go up to them and go, man, I could do that. My, one of my favorite artists, his name's Barnett Newman, and it would be a, a painting that's about the size of his back wall, and it's red, and there's a black line through it, and it's gorgeous. I love it. I love it. They're in the, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in the, at the Smithsonian in D.C., there's an entire room, and it's the, the 12 Stations of the Cross, which is something that artists have been painting for centuries, and his are just 12 white canvases with black lines through them. And it's one of these things that I go there with my little brother, Joel, and he just stands there, and he goes, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I would hear that from my students all the time. I'd be showing these paintings, and I'd be going on and on about them, and they'd go, Mr. Adams, I don't get it. And I realized that this, this, it didn't really make sense to me. What, what do you mean you don't get it? And I realized that so many of us have been given this language of like the wrong kinds of questions when we engage with art. We've been convinced that art is something we're supposed to get, like we're supposed to understand it. We're supposed to be able to just kind of describe it, consume it, and then move on to the next piece. But what I've realized through my training in art and what I've realized becoming a pastor and like participating in the life of God, it's not about you and I getting it. It's not about us consuming it so that we can make it small and controllable and then move on to the next thing. It's about us witnessing it. It's about us participating it in a way that it transforms us and we come back to it time and again like we come back to these amazingly beautiful masterpieces. Why do we keep watching the same films over and over again? Why do we keep listening to the best songs over and over again? Why do we keep going back to see that one painting that's in the corner that nobody seems to notice over and over and over again? Because there's this allure of beauty that draws us into an experience, a moment, and it changes us every time that we come back to it. When you're talking about beauty, do you start with the wrong questions? Do you start with the wrong propositions that this is something that you're supposed to get? And I think this is what good art, as an articulation of beauty, it does for us. 
is that it gives us a moment, an experience, an encounter that invites us to be transformed because we're witnessing it. And so why, why have we ended up here where so few of us have the language for understanding the centrality of beauty when it comes to the reality of God. So I wanna give you a brief little history lesson. Bear with me, this is another place that I tend to get very wonky, but we'll get through this and we'll be fine. As the church, we have a heritage of beauty we can reclaim and build upon. So very brief history. Um, From about 300 until about 1,000, there was one church. And then from 1,000 to about 1,500, there were sort of two churches. We had the Catholic Church in the West, around Rome. We had the Orthodox Church in the East. That was kind of centered around Constantinople, what is modern-day Istanbul. And both of these traditions, if you've ever stepped into a Catholic cathedral or an Orthodox church, you see that all around you there's, there's art and there's imagery and there's incense and there's gold gilded everything. And it's this entirely different realm of doing church than what we have. And that was the way that we did church for um, hundreds of years. And then there was something called the Enlightenment that came along. Perhaps you remember this from your history classes, the Enlightenment, it was called the Age of Reason. This was the first time that humanity really began to elevate logic and reason. These are the highest calls of what it means to be a human being. And it also became the moment where our faith started to separate itself from European culture. That the church was always at the center of culture. We always dictated what art is and what faith is and so on and so forth. And it was in the Enlightenment that these two things began to be split apart. And so the Age of Enlightenment said reason and logic, that's the highest call for humanity. And what happened in the parallel world in the church was what we call the Reformation. This is John John Luther, or Martin Luther, John Calvin, all these guys. And they started to protest against these things that they're seeing in the Catholic Church, these corruptions that are very, very, uh, they they were very worth going up against. And they established what becomes the Protestant movement. And the, pro- the problem was that the Protestant movement, by and large, was influenced by this age of enlightenment. That the church began to believe the highest call for human beings was reason and logic and practicality. And if we can just describe God, if we can argue God with people, if we can make God logical, then that is us speaking truth. And what we see from that in about 15, 1600s, through the modern Protestant church is this gradual walking away from the allure and centrality of beauty as part of our faith. Even it was brought over here to this country with Puritans and some of these other movements that everything was very stark, very bare, and very plain. And I I think it it even shows in how we do church. It shows in the buildings that we create. I wanna show you this image. This is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Has anybody seen this in real life? Couple of you, okay, world travelers, that's great. John, are there any cool birds over there? (laughs) Neat. It's a city, there's pigeons probably. Um, This is St. Peter's Basilica. This is the largest church in the world. It's in Rome. Uh, It's the kind of the unofficial center of the Catholic Church. They began building this on the 18th of April, 1508, and it was completed on the 18th of November, 1626. So it took over 100 years for them to build this cathedral. And see, here's here's the thing. When I tell you that, and if I ever gave you like the price tag for this, your Protestant work ethic would go, such a waste. They could have fed so many orphans with the money that they put into that building. And we've reduced it down like it's impractical. 
And it's illogical to do something that takes that long and that much money and that much grandeur. It feels a little too grandiose to us in our Protestant mindsets. And I think this is the very problem. Because take this image of beauty, St. Peter's Basilica, the largest church in the world, and size it up with some of the churches that we have today. And I'm talking about these corrugated tin boxes that it's like someone walked in there with a sprayer and just went beige. The chairs are all folding chairs. Everything has to have multiple functionality to it. And it's this natural conclusion of us Protestants being robbed of the centrality of beauty in our faith because we choose function over form. We choose practicality over allure. And I think this is why beauty is so powerful because beauty is not practical. Beauty is not practical. In our Protestant mindsets, we often ask questions, is it practical, is it useful? And I'm not saying that that's not valuable, but when the whole conversation is reduced to that, what inevitably happens when we ask questions of practicality is we're only talking about ourselves. How is this practical to me? How is this useful for me? How is this going to help me live a better life tomorrow? But when you and I begin to ask questions of beauty, you see, beauty takes us outside of ourselves. Beauty begins to open us up to something that's a little bit bigger than our lives, our lane. And when we begin to ask questions of beauty in our faith, about God, about church, about ourselves, we find that we're in a whole different paradigm. That kind of leads me to my next point. Beauty speaks to the extravagance of God. Beauty speaks to the extravagance of God. We were talking about this on Thursday in our teaching team, and, and Cole used this word extravagance, and it immediately made me think of my favorite parable in all scripture, which is the prodigal son. And many of you are probably familiar with this story. A father has two sons. The younger of them comes to him and says, Father, I, I want my half of the inheritance now, which is really him saying, I wish you were already dead so I can get what I deserve. And it's the love of the father that he gives his son his inheritance early. And the story goes on that the son goes out and he spends it all and he, and he buys up everything that he thought he ever wanted and he ends up in this foreign country um, naked and alone and hungry. And he has this thought. He goes, maybe I need to go back to my father's house. The, that this is when we talk about repentance. The word means to come home. He says, maybe I need to come home. And I know that I've already messed up in being a son, but maybe I can go back to my father and plead my case that I can be a servant. Because at least the servants in my father's house have food and shelter, and I can kind of work off my debt. And so the son comes back to the father. He's preparing his speech. He's kind of you know, resigned. This is going to be my life to be a servant. And what happens? The father rushes out to meet him, and the son kind of like goes through his, his pre-rehearsed story. And the father kind of pushes aside all of his excuses and embraces him. And then he calls for the servants, and he says, bring him new sandals and put rings on his fingers and cover him in a robe, and we're going to have this huge party, slaughter the calf, and the son just can't really contain that. And I think this is the problem, that for us, because Protestants have lost the place of beauty, when we talk about our journey with God, we think we're returning to him in the best that we can hope for is just to be servants in his house because we don't think that we deserve to be sons and daughters we don't think that we deserve the extravagance of God 
And this is the power of that parable. This is the power of that image. Is the father says, I'm not content just to have you work for me. I'm not content for you just to get the bare minimum and to survive. I want you to thrive. I want you to experience the love that I have for you. This is why in Ephesians, Paul says, see how great the the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should become children of God. And beauty speaks to that extravagant love that God has for us. I'm gonna share with you one of my favorite contemporary artists. His name is Makoto Fujimura. And he's a Japanese artist. He was born in Boston, moved back to Japan at a very early age. And he grows up in that culture. And at 27, he's studying to become an artist. And he's studying this ancient Japanese technique of painting called Nihonga, which essentially uses all of these raw minerals in the paint. There's a lot of like gold and, and mica and, and different kinds of stones that have been um, you know, ground down into dust. And it's incorporated into the painting. And it makes this really beautiful art. You've probably seen it in a lot of pottery. And as, as Fujimura is developing his style, that he's taking these ancient techniques from his heritage, and he's kind of incorporating it into modern abstract painting, he realizes at 27, and I've heard him give his testimony, and he said this, I realized that I didn't have a shelf in my heart to hold the beauty that I was creating. He realized that he, he had grown up his whole life not really having a category for beauty, and it was through creating it that he realized he didn't have a way to understand it or to articulate it. And then he stumbled across this old William Blake poem that starts to talk about God and it starts to talk about his son Jesus and what he did on the cross. And Makoto Fujimura said, if there is such a thing as beauty, that's what it looks like. He said, I was a Christian for a year before I even knew what that was. And he's been working for 20 or 30 years. He lives in New York City. He has this amazing organization where he helps um, Christians realize how faith and art can be combined. And just a few years ago, um, he was commissioned on the 400th anniversary of the translation of the King James Bible um, to, to do some illuminated manuscripts for the four Gospels. Um, and, and so what an illuminated manuscript is is basically this. This is one of the best known examples. This is the Book of Kells. It was, um, it was written in Ireland in about the 800s. And so Celtic monks would take months and years and they would transcribe by hand the entire scripture, all of the Gospels. But not only would they write it, they would also create these fantastic drawings that went alongside of the words, that kind of illuminated it to make it a little bit more than just the words on the page. So this is the first page of the four Holy Gospels. Top left is uh, a man symbolizing Matthew, and then uh, a lion symbolizing Mark, and then you come down to the eagle representing Luke, and then finally um, the, the, the uh, bull representing John. And so and here's the next page. You find it, these are the pages that would be woven into this manuscript that kind of illuminated the scriptures to the readers. Because remember, at this time, a lot of people couldn't read. And it was that Celtic tradition of these, these um, you know, infinite knots and these very intricate lines and a lot of like flora and fauna wrapped into it that begun to tell the story in a slightly different way than just being descriptive. And so a few years ago, Fujimura was, a, was approached for this 400-year anniversary of the King James Bible, and he was invited to create um, his own version of the four holy gospels. And so he, wrote, he painted a panel for each one of them, and then in the book, he illuminated some of the scripts. So this is kind of what it looks like on the first page in Matthew chapter 1. So this is Matthew. It's called Consider the Lilies. He wanted to create a painting that talked about learning how to pause and reflect. The next one is Mark. 
And this one, he said, was all about the image of fire, that time and again, Mark uses this imagery of fire to talk about the Holy Spirit as the refining fire of God. The next one is Luke. He really wanted to capture the, the intricacy of Luke's gospel and how much of it is a history and how much of it is Luke very concerned with the details. And then finally is the gospel of John. He was inspired by those first lines in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. He wanted to create some sort of a, a, a visual accompaniment to this kind of cosmic perspective of Jesus as the Word of God. And I love that this is something that we're seeing awaken in our day and age. And actually, we have a copy of the book sitting in the back there. If you want to go and look at it after the gathering, I highly encourage you to do so. Because I think a lot of modern churches, especially in the West, are beginning to awaken to the centrality of beauty in our faith. That there are a lot of churches that are starting to glean from the great tradition. That we have hundreds and thousands of years of those who have gone before us who have created things of beauty that speak to the reality of God. And it's also sparking new innovation. That there are churches all over the country that are reasserting beauty in worship that are reasserting this allure and the mystery of beauty that leads us to awe and to wonder. And this is something that we believe is integral to the DNA of our community, a city beautiful church. It's something that we've always wanted to make central, whether it's through worship, through lights, through the experiences that we have, whatever it might be, we've always endeavored to make beauty as part of our worshipful experience. And unfortunately, we find that, again, that, that Protestant ethic that looks at some of these things sometimes and says, well, your worship is manipulative. And you say, how so? And you say, well, there's reverb on the guitars. Sounds like you're trying to make me cry. And unfortunately, that speaks to where so much of our culture is at, that beauty is impractical and it, something's being asked of me. What's the first thing that we cut in our public school systems? Arts. It's not practical. Because it's untamable. But we want to be a church that continues to make the creativity and beauty central to our DNA because we believe that it's through the allure of beauty that we will meet God as he really is. And so how do we practically reclaim beauty as if it's a practical thing that we can do as central to our faith? Beauty is something we practice through witness and worship. Beauty is something we practice through witness in how we perceive it. And beauty is something that we practice through worship, how we put it out into the world before God. And so, as I said, aesthetics is the study of what is beautiful. And while there may be a lot of nuance in this room in how we each perceive beauty and art and music and in nature and in whatever it might be, um, there's these essential unifying understandings for us as human beings of what's beautiful and what's not. But it's important to recognize that our aesthetics, what we consider beautiful, have to be formed. This is something that I recognize being an art teacher. And the way that I like to describe it is this. When you're a little kid, there are only two flavors in the world, bread and sugar. That's it. That's all little kids care about. Some of y'all are in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, and there are still only two flavors in the entire world, bread and sugar. See Jake afterwards if you want to go and get some donuts or something. But as we grow up, our, our flavor desires change. We start to embrace nuance. We start to embrace flavors like bitter 
or bittersweet or sour or unagi, this kind of new flavor they've like located on the center of your tongue. And we begin to embrace those subtleties and temperature and combinations and what goes well with what. And as we grow, our aesthetics are changed and they're formed because we're practicing it, because we're exploring it, because we're seeking to find something in it that's a little bit more than what we're, we're initially presented with. And so I think that's very true of our faith as well in our pursuit of beauty, that you and I have to practice beauty that we have to develop an eye that matches the heart that God has given us because he's established eternity within your heart, but you have to begin to listen to it, to see it, to, par- to participate in it, and to draw it out and learn how to develop an eye that matches the heart because we all have these untrained eyes when we begin. The bane of my existence when I was a high school art teacher were the anime kids. Any anime, anime kids in here? Apologies. No? Okay, great. So if you don't know what anime is, we're talking like Pokemon, Gundam Wing, like Japanese animation, that kind of stuff. Like the comics are called manga. And um, what we would often do as a starting lesson when I was teaching portraiture was to sit in front of a mirror and you have to draw yourself. You have to really look at yourself and begin to draw. And the idea was we'll do one portrait at the beginning of the year and we'll do one at the end of the year so you can see how you progress as an artist. And it was always so hard with these anime kids because they had learned by copying their favorite comic books. And so they learned this is what an eye looks like, these three lines. This is what a nose looks like, these two lines. This is what a mouth looks like. And so when they would draw themselves, they just draw an anime character that was maybe wearing what they happened to be wearing that day. And I had to keep pushing them to say, no, 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 you're not seeing. You're not really looking at yourself. You're just drawing symbolic representations of the thing. And it was hard for them to get the click. But when they started to do so, they began to release these very simplistic symbols that they had learned. And they finally started to learn how to really see. And one of the things I hear time and again from people with drawing is say, well, I can draw, you know, houses or I can draw cars or whatever, but I can't draw people. And I say, that's not a real thing. That is an illusion. Because the illusion is that you're drawing a person. You're, you're drawing line, shape, color. The same as anything else in the world. Everything is the same as everything else. Probably about as hippie as I'm going to get tonight. But when you're drawing... Everything is the same as everything else. And when you stop thinking, when you're looking at something of what it is and you reduce it to line, shape, and form, you can draw anything. But it takes that practice to begin in the art world to learn how to see and how to respond. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to our faith, that it takes practice, that it, it can, it's the continual pursuance of encounter time and again that really begins to shape us and form us so that we can see beauty the way that God does. I want to look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. And I think this is a beautiful example of where Paul is speaking to this um, when it comes specifically to Christ. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the eternity being placed within your heart. This is the the, the pursual of beauty being established in your DNA. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. And this is really key. This is the part that I want us to focus on. To grasp how wide and long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I don't think Paul here is talking about being able to accurately describe the love that Jesus has for you. I don't think he's talking about being able to categorize it, to lay it out on a spreadsheet, and be able to analyze the results and know that Jesus loves you. I've spoken against that terrible song that we all learned as children, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. I don't believe that. I don't think that's enough. I don't want to know that Jesus loves me based on a rumor. I want to experience love. I want to be transformed by love. And scripture opens me up to that encounter, that transformation. And what Paul's talking about here when he says to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, is he's opening us up to this transcendent encounter with the reality of Jesus that changes us, that transforms us, that every time that we come to Christ, expecting an encounter with him, it shapes us and it forms us. Logic alone does not move us to tears. Reasoning things out, doing the analysis, that doesn't move us, that doesn't change us. And it can point us in the right direction, but it's not the end of the conversation. And this is the difference when, between analyzing a masterpiece and then actually allowing it to wash over you. That we can sit in front of a great work of art and we can describe all the characters and the colors and maybe we know the story of why the artist painted it and what their agenda was and what they had for breakfast that morning and all that stuff, but it doesn't mean that you've actually encountered the work of art. It doesn't mean that you've actually been moved to your core when you've experienced the beauty of that artwork. And unfortunately, so many of us take that reality and do not apply it to Jesus. We can describe the story of Jesus in great detail. We know the Hebrew words. We know the Greek words. We know what's going on. We can maybe make some sense of what's going on at the cross, but that is a whole different conversation than being able to stand in front of the beautiful face of Christ and to allow it to wash over us in such a way as it transforms us and it changes us. Jesus is not something that we're supposed to stand in front of and go, I don't get it. I don't get him. I can't contain him. I can't control him. I can't make sense of him. He's someone that we're supposed to experience, to allow to wash over us, to transform us so that we really know what beauty is. God, as revealed in Jesus, is our standard of beauty. That's what we look to when we describe what is beautiful. I believe ultimately that all beauty that this world has in store for us is only a partial mirror reflection of the absolute beauty of God. Everything, every aspect of beauty in this world is just an icon that is set up for us, that it testifies to the thing beyond the thing. And Jesus is the ultimate icon of God. He's the ultimate image of God. Jesus is what God is really like because he is the most beautiful and accurate representation of him. As Christians, we choose to make Jesus the center of our understanding of who God is. And we allow Jesus as the center of who God is to be the filter by which we look at everything else, scripture included. 
And I believe that our aesthetic, our standard of beauty is cruciform. Our standard, our aesthetic, our beauty is cross-shaped. Because this is what beauty looks like to us when we look at Jesus. That it is the ugliness of sin and death that has been conquered by the beauty of sacrificial love and forgiveness that actually saves the world. It's the allure, the beauty of what we see of God on the cross that transforms us and rescues us and saves us. And the beauty that we see in the cross is the image, this is what God really looks like, is not a practical or a reasonable beauty. It's radical, it's subversive, it's counterintuitive. This is probably the first and only time that I'll quote Marilyn Manson in a sermon. But, but 15 years ago, I read this interview with him, and he was talking about Christianity. He said this, Jesus is a half-naked guy hanging, nailed to a cross, and then people wear that around their neck, and then those are the people that are upset about violence in movies. And I understand that to a certain degree. We look at this image of the cross, and we say, that's pure ugliness. That's evil. That's wrong. How could anybody find beauty in that? But when you and I have met Jesus face to face, as we've met God as revealed in Christ face to face, we look at the cross and we say, that is the single most beautiful thing that I have ever seen in my life because it has saved me, it has rescued me, it has transformed me. Several years ago, I was reading through one of the gospels in its entirety, trying not to do the analysis thing, and I came to this realization at the end. I said, my God, I believe in this story because it's beautiful. Because when I read the story of Christ, when I encounter Jesus in the gospel, when I encounter the story of Christ that stretches all the way back to Adam and Eve, it's a beautiful story. And I want to give you permission tonight to allow the allure of beauty to tell you that it's true. Because when we look at the beauty of Christ, we see something that lives in the tension between honesty and hope. We see something that's not practical and is not reasonable, but it's something more. And we see something that is alluring, that draws us into the mystery of God. And so we have to practice beauty by witnessing to it. But we also practice beauty by offering up worship as an offering to a beautiful God. And so if you want to stand with me, please, that's what we're going to do here tonight. As Greg was talking about earlier, this is one of the few spaces that we have where we do this very strange and beautiful thing. We come together and we make beautiful noises. Some of you, it's a little bit more noise than it is beauty, but your intentions are good. But we come together and we sing these songs and we allow the beauty of what we're creating to be an offering to God, to say, God, you are beautiful. May we be a reflection of that. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us Jesus as the ultimate icon, the ultimate image of what you're really like. Lord, so many of us have inherited these ugly images of you. Images that speak something very different than the God that we see on the cross. Images that speak something very different than Jesus choosing to say, Father God, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Lord, as we worship you tonight, 
as a demonstration of faith. We pray that you would rescue for us the beautiful image of a beautiful God. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move freely in this space, to, to, to put forth that sweet aroma of beauty that draws us into your reality, that we might gaze at you face to face as you truly are and to be changed, transformed by that, that we might leave this place understanding what beauty really is and how integral it is to our faith journey. Pray these things in the strong and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.